All right, thank you so much for that song. Turn your Bibles again to Acts 17, please. Acts 17. As you turn in, let me start off with a, asking your forgiveness. Two things. First of all, I woke up this morning, my nose is running. So I may have to blow it several times during the sermon. So if you'd bear with me there, but also I got my water for drinking too. Between the both, I'll be quite busy up here. So if you would uh, keep that in mind. and uh, We're continuing our study on life-changing biblical principles. These are biblical truths that will literally change your life if you apply them. I think I share with you each time we've covered these. It's not probably something you have learned for the first time. You already know these truths. But it's not knowing the truths that changes lives. It is doing them. Remember, James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Come about this man will be blessed in his deed. So I encourage you to pay attention. We talked about the first life-changing principle was that of ownership. Then we looked at the next one was the temporal versus the eternal. Then we saw the biblical principle of the crucified life. Then last week we looked at the principle of sowing and reaping. Today we'd like to look at the principle of judgment. The principle of judgment. Many years ago, about 9.30 at night, I received a knock on the door. I was already in my pajamas and laying down. I wasn't asleep. I was looking at a magazine. All of a sudden, there was a quite a knock on the door. I mean, a pounding. And I had to get up and get dressed and go to the door. And it was a police officer at the door. And I looked at him the way you're looking at me. <laughs> quite sure. And so I opened the door. I said, yes, sir, can I help you? And he says, are you David Peterson? I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, he reached out and handed me a summons to court. And uh, on the it said, hereby you are summoned to appear before the honorable so-and-so on this date. And by the way, I, hadn't, I did anything wrong. It was, I was a witness of a, a, a court case of somebody else. But it was quite an uh, uncomfortable situation, to say the least. I didn't sleep very well that night when a police officer at the door and giving me a summons to court. And today we're going to look at a summons to court for the believer. The God that summons you to his court, the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to look at that today in our study on the... Uh, principle of judgment. But let's begin in Acts 17. We read the verse together. We're going to see here, because of this idea of judgment, it's a powerful motivation. Judgment is a powerful motivation. In verse 30 of Acts 17, it said, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to what? Notice this commandment is not made to a select few, but all men everywhere to repent. The word repent, specifically for salvation, has the idea of a change of mind. We're going to look at today, God calls unbelievers to repent. God calls Christians to repent. But first of all, notice because of God's judgment, this is a motivation for the unbeliever to repent. Keep your finger right there in Acts 17. Go to Acts 20, please. Acts chapter 20. Page 1564, Acts chapter 20, here it says, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. In other words, this is a message to both the Jewish people and also the Gentiles. And it says, testifying, first of all, it says, repentance Toward God. Those are two essentials for salvation for the unbeliever, whether it be Jew or Greek. The first one is repentance 
toward God. How many realize there's so many different opinions today about who God is? I mean, if you went out and knocked on doors and asked people, what do you think about God and who is he? You get all different opinions. But when it comes to salvation, people have to repent, change their mind from their way of thinking to what the Bible says about God. And let me give you some, some attributes of God that so many unbelievers got to change their mind about. The first one, the Bible says God is holy. God is holy. The holiness of God, of all the attributes of God, is mentioned the most in the Bible. That God is a holy God. That means he's righteous, he's perfect, he's without sin. The Bible says God is light, in him is no darkness at all. He is righteous and perfect. And the Bible says because of his holiness... We are required to be holy to enter his presence. Now, how do you measure up to that standard? We all fall short, do we not? And so God is holy. In his holiness, he says, to enter my presence, you must be holy. Next, about his, care, his attributes, God is just. God is just. That means the justice of God. Because of his justice, it demands the, uh, for those who fall short of his holiness to be punished. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. We all have sinned and come short of God's glory. So God is holy. In his holiness, he requires for you to enter his presence. You have to be as righteous as God is. And because of his justice, if you don't meet that standard, you fall under his judgment. And that's death. But also, God is merciful. How many are grateful for God's mercy? God's merciful. Even though he's holy... And he says, you must be holy in my presence because he's just and says, if you don't meet my holiness, you'll fall under the judgment of God. God is merciful. His mercy cries out for life. His mercy cries out for life, pleads for life. And the fourth attribute is God is love. God is love. Because of his love, he provided a substitute. Now think about that for a moment. His justice, excuse me, his holiness requires holy, holiness to enter his presence. None of us are. His justice demands punishment for those who don't meet that standard of holiness, which you all deserve. But his mercy pleads for life. And in his love, he provided a substitute. So many people today think they don't believe in hell because they think if God's a God of love, God cannot send anyone to hell if he's a God of love. But God will not sacrifice his justice on the altar of love. His justice must be fulfilled. And all that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfilled the requirements of his holiness because he was holy. He satisfied the demands of his justice, the fact that he died on the cross to pay for our sin. And he's the embodiment of mercy and love. And that's when he says, repentance toward God, and the next requirement is faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith speaks of the sinner's acceptance of Christ as his Savior, and his dependence and trust in him as the only hope for heaven. So in order for a person to go to heaven, he needs to have repentance toward God, a change of mind about who God is, and also a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of God's judgment, what a strong motivation for the unbeliever to repent. But also, because of God's judgment, it's a motivation for the believer to repent. Repentance doesn't stop at salvation. 
So many times we as believers have to change our minds, do we not? And go with me now, if you will, please, to Romans chapter 2, please. Keep your finger in Acts. We're coming right back to that. Romans chapter 2, page 1582. The Bible says, you know, God commanded that all men everywhere repent. That includes the unbeliever as well as the Christian. We are commanded to repent after we're saved. And God will use two things to bring the believer to repentance. The first one is God's goodness. God's goodness. Look here in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, please. He says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering. How many grateful for God's forbearance and longsuffering? Where would we be if God was not longsuffering? Where would we be without his forbearance and his goodness? How many believe God is good? And it goes on to say, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to what? I don't know about you. It's God's goodness that so many times in my life it caused me to change my mind about things I'm doing. Because he's been so good to me. That's caused me to repent, to change my mind about things I'm considering doing, things I should not do, things I should do. God's goodness leads people to repentance. The second thing God uses is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. We're talking about the two things God uses to bring believers to repentance. Go with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, please. God will use sorrow to bring a person to a change of mind, to repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, page 1629. And I'm grateful that you're using your Bibles that you're looking at what the Bible says. It's not my opinion what the Bible says concerning these issues. Again, we're talking about the principle of judgment and how that judgment is a strong motivation for the the unbeliever to repent, but also for the Christian to repent. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, please. Verse 9. Paul, speaking to the believer, here he says, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry but that you sorrowed to what? Repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now listen very carefully, please. Here we have a clear distinction between sorrow and repentance. So many people today think repentance means sorry for sin. It does not. Now God uses Sorrow to bring in repentance, but they are not the same. And so many people require the unbeliever to be sorry for his sin before he gets saved. How sorry do you have to be? What degree of, a degree of grief do you have to reach before God says, well, he's sorry and she's not? But God will use sorrow to bring about repentance. It said that you sorrow to repentance in verse 10, that godly sorrow worketh repentance. But notice there's two kinds of sorrow here. There's godly sorrow in the latter part of verse 10, for the sorrow of the world worketh death. What's the difference between godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world? Godly sorrow is you're sorry for what you did. I'm sorry I did that. The sorrow of the world is I'm sorry I got caught. Boy, sometimes we work with teenagers and they confront them doing something wrong. Oh, I'm so sorry. They're not sorry they did it. They're sorry they got caught. And that's the sorrow of this world and leads to death. But basically, God will use his goodness 
but also sorrow to bring God's people to repentance, to change their mind. And when we begin to examine the judgment of God, that's not only for the unbeliever, but for the Christian, it may cause you to be sorry for some things you've done in your life and not live for the Lord being confronted with this uh, judgment. So basically, the principle of judgment is a strong motivation to repent for the unbeliever as well as the believer. But also, let's talk, look at an appointed day. An appointed day. Go back to Acts 17, please. Back where we began. Acts 17. Look in verse 31, please. Here's the reason why he's command all men everywhere to repent. It says in verse 31, Acts 17, 31. Why should we repent? Because he hath appointed a day in which he would judge what? The world. The word world is not talking about the planet we live on. It's talking about humanity. God has set aside as appointed a day in which he would judge all humanity. Judgment of the unbeliever as well as the Christian. But I want you to notice the standard of this judgment. He said he would judge the world in righteousness. The standard by which God will measure all the world to is his own holiness and righteousness. How do you measure up to that? What a standard. But he would judge the world in righteousness. That's the standard of judgment. Now notice the person of judgment. Who is it that does the judging? I'm glad you asked. Read on. He would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given us assurance unto all men, in that he raised him up from the dead. Who's the him? Who's the one he raised from the dead? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that's going to judge the world. In fact, it says in John 5, 22, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So when, the, when people were saved, unsaved, right, they would stand before the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to whom he would judge them in righteousness. So it's appointed day. It's a day appointed for the unbeliever. Go with me now. In fact, first of all, a day's reserve. Look on your screen there, please. Look at the verse. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says there, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust, that's the unbeliever, unto the day of what? Judgment to be punished. So this appointed day, there's a day been reserved. What day that is, we do not know. But God has set aside, appointed a day in which he would judge the world and reserve that day, but also a place has been reserved. Not only has a day been reserved, if God has a calendar, has a certain day set aside to judge the unbeliever, but also a place. Go with me now to Revelations, please. A place is reserved. The last book of your Bible, chapter 20, please. Revelation 20, page 1744. Everybody turn with me, please. Funny, sometimes I hear very little ruffling of the pages. Other times I hear a lot. And it would be great if I could hear a lot right now. I want you to see what the Bible says about the judgment of the unbeliever. And if by chance you're here today and you never trusted Christ, I would encourage you to pay close attention because you will be at this judgment. Now, we're going to talk about the judgment of the believer in just a moment. 
But this is for all unbelievers. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, never been born again, my friend, this judgment's for you. I want you to see exactly what God's going to judge. Revelation 20, verse 11. Notice here it has the place of judgment. It says, verse 11, Revelation 20, verse 11. He said, I saw a what? A great white throne and him that sat on it. That's the Lord Jesus Christ from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now, we know according to 2 Peter, God's going to judge this world with fire and destroy the heavens and the earth. That happens prior to this judgment, because why is there heaven and earth is gone? Now, in chapter 21, he creates a new heaven and earth. But at this time, we do not know this will not be on the earth, because the earth's not here. Some people think it's going to be in outer space somewhere. But wherever it's at, there's going to be a judgment. He said, I saw a great white throne. It's great because of sinners of all history will be stand before it. It's white because it represents the righteousness and holiness of God. Because remember, he's going to judge the world in righteousness. It's called, so the place of the judgment of the unbeliever, unbelievers of all time, from Adam and Eve's son all the way to the last man who ever lived, this unsaved will stand before this judgment. And so, notice the participants we see in verse 12. The place, the great white throne, the participants, in verse 12, I saw the dead. The word dead refers to the unsaved dead, the, uns, the spiritually dead. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before who? God. The word small talks about the insignificant, those of little, of importance, or value. Great refers to those esteemed highly for their importance. So whether you are nobody or somebody, you will be there. People, small or great, stand before God. Again, this is talking about the unbeliever, the unsaved dead. Look in verse 13. He said, and the sea gave up the dead, which were in it. Interesting. Some time ago, I did a study on what we call cremation. Because so many people ask me as a pastor, is it okay for a Christian to be cremated? And it's become so popular because of the expense of, you know, to bury someone. You got to buy a plot and buy a casket and all that, and it's become very expensive. So even Christians now are practicing cremation. But if you do a study on it, you'll find out it was not originated in the Bible. It originated by the unsaved. And the reason they did it because they knew the Bible teaching that one day there's going to be a resurrection of the dead to stand before God. And they thought, I can avoid that resurrection because I'll burn my body all up. And therefore, my body is in ashes. They can't, God can't resurrect ashes. They know not the power of God nor the word of God. And so they did cremation because of that reason. But also, it says the sea gave up the dead. Many are buried in the sea. Because they think you throw your body in the sea, it's going to eventually dissolve and be scattered all over the place. And they think, well, I can avoid God's judgment that way. So whether it's by cremation or in the sea, God's going to resurrect the body no matter where it's at and what it is. He'll resurrect the body and bring it before God in judgment. I saw the sea, it goes on to say, which other, gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell. Delivered up the dead, which were in them. Death, listen carefully, is where the body is. The grave. Hell, in the Greek word, is Hades, where the spirit is. See, when an unbeliever dies today, he does not go to the lake of fire. 
that will happen after this judgment. He'll go to the place called Hades that's located in the heart of this earth. It is a temporary place until they stand before God in this judgment. And so, by the way, when you die, you don't go to Hades. Absent from the body is what? Praise the Lord. You go directly to heaven. But basically what it's saying here, he saw the sea gave up the dead. Death, where the body is, would be resurrected. And the hell is where the soul is to be brought together, united with the body, and stand before God. That's the participants. Now, we saw the place. What's the place called? Great White Throne. We saw the participants. That's unsaved of all time, of all history. Every place, everywhere. Then now the particulars of this judgment. The particulars. Notice, first of all, there's a recorded record. There's a recorded record, a record of one's deeds. Now, again, I encourage you, whether you're watching by live stream or here today, if you're not saved, I would encourage you to pay close attention. Here, God's describing the judgment that the unsaved will stand before. So you can see, and I don't say this lightly or meanly, you can see what's coming. And by the way, this should motivate you to trust Christ as Savior. And it says there, notice the records of one's deeds. All your works are recorded by God. In the, latter, in the middle part of verse 12 there, chapter 20 of Revelation, it says here, and the books, notice plural, the books were opened, and it goes on to say, and the dead, the unsaved dead, were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their what? In other words, everything, I'm going to show you every thought, Every word, every action done in public or secret, God records. And it will be brought forth at this judgment, and you'll be judged according to your works. Let me give you some scriptures. I believe the references in your notes, but not the verse itself, will be on the screen. So look at the screens, please. Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes. I can't read this morning. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be bad. Matthew 12, 36. But I say unto you that every idle word that a man shall speak, he shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Luke 12, verse 2. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, nothing neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whosoever ye, so whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear of the closets shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Romans 2.16. For the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Luke 8.17. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither shall anything hid that shall not be uh, known and come abroad. Listen carefully, please. Every word every thought, every secret, things done publicly, privately, everybody to see or in the closet, God will bring forth. God is recorded in the book and he will judge accordingly. And the purpose of this is the severity of the judgment is based upon the man's works. As he judges your works, he was, the severity, someone said, the degree of punishment, the suffering in hell, is based upon the, the record, these works he's recorded in the book. But there's also another record there. Not only a record of one's deeds, there's a record of who has trusted Christ. 
A record of who has trusted Christ. Look again in verse 12, please. He said, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books, now it's plural there, the books where the deeds were recorded were open, but goes on to say, and another book, singular, notice that, was open, which is the book of life. You ever heard of the Lamb's book of life? This is the book. Now, here's a question, don't answer out loud, but most people get it wrong. When is a person's name recorded in the book of life? Most people believe when they get saved. In fact, there's a hymn. I love it, but it's not biblically correct. There's a new name written down in glory. You've heard that before? I love that song. But there's new, no new name written down in the book. The book was written from the foundation of the world. Amen. It includes all people, saved and unsaved alike. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And all those for whom the Lamb died are recorded there. But when a person dies without Christ, his name is blotted out. And Revelation chapter 3 talks about, He that overcometh, I will not blot his name out of the book. So if you're saved or unsaved, your name's in the book. But if you die without Christ, it's blotted out. And it goes on to say, Whosoever was not found in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. So there's a recorded record of one's deeds and a recorded record of those who've trusted Christ. Now, notice the results of this judgment. The results. We're talking about the recorded record, but now the results of the judgment. Look in verse 14. It says, death and hell, it means where the body is and where the soul is cast into the lake of fire. This is what? The second death. How many would believe that the second death has to be a first death? <laughs> you can't get to two without first going through one. What's the first death? Physical. What's the second death? Spiritual. So basically, we're all going to die one day physically. That's the first death. Death is defined in the Bible as separation. When you die physically at that moment, your spirit soul leaves your body. In fact, James says, as the body without the spirit is dead. Now, if you're saved, absent the body, present with the Lord. But if you're not saved, you experience death also. Your spirit leaves your body. And then it goes on to second death as if this judgment where your soul and spirit will be separated from God forever in a place called hell. There's physical death, that's the first death, then spiritual death. Someone once said this, if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you're not going to die once. If you've been born of the flesh, and that's all physically, you'll die physically and spiritually. But if you're born physically and spiritually born again by the Spirit of God, you're only going to die once. And there's going to be a group of people that will not even die once at the rapture. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. So basically, here it talks about a judgment, an appointed day, appointed place for the unbeliever, where all his deeds are recorded, all will be brought out forthright for that. Now, our time is just about gone, and I'm halfway through my message. <laughs> so I just want to touch on a couple of things about the judgment for the believer to whet your appetite to be here next week. Because probably most of you, if not all of you, are a Christian. So you don't have to worry about the great white throne. That's for the unbeliever. What you have to be concerned about is one called the judgment seat of Christ. So this is appointed day for the unbeliever, there's also a point of day for the believer. 
The believer's judgment comes first, the Bible says. The believer's judgment comes first. Look on your screen there, please. 1 Peter 4, 17. For the time has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be for them that obey not the gospel? How do you obey the gospel? Believe it. You obey it by believing the gospel, trusting Christ as Savior. So the believer's judgment comes first. But now go with me now to 2 Corinthians, please, chapter 5. Here is your summons to court, Christian. Here is a verse where you're summoned to come before God. 2 Corinthians 5, page 1627. Every believer must appear. Every believer must appear. We're going to go through this quickly, and then we'll wrap it up because the time is coming to an end. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. In fact, it's interesting that summons I got from the uh, police officer are very similar to this. It said, you must appear before honorable so-and-so. And notice what it says here to the Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must what? All, All appear. Notice Paul included himself. And by the way, to be biblically correct, this is for the church only. The Old Testament saints are judged at another time. This is every believer from Pentecost to the rapture, the body of Christ. This is the judgment for them. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone, notice the two words there, all and everyone, may, may receive the things done in his body according to which it is done, whether it be good or bad. Look up here, please. We're going to turn one more verse more close. Here is your summon to court. He said, Pastor, I'm not going to go. Yes, you are. For we must all appear, that everyone. So if you're a Christian, this is your place of judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to describe this in detail next Sunday. But it says that you may receive things which you've done, whether it be good or bad. Now, please listen. Here's a hallelujah. That's not a judgment for sin. That was at Calvary. You will never stand before God and give an account of your sin because Jesus Christ did it for you. When he hung on the cross, there on the cross, he became sin for you, and he gave an account to the holy God of heaven for your sin. And he died for your sin and was buried and rose again. Therefore, this judgment is not, that now therefore, there's no condemnation to them in Christ Jesus. It's not a judgment for sin. It's a judgment for your works, which you've done for Christ since you were saved, for rewards. We're going to describe, talk about that next week. So let's close with this verse. Go with me now to, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew 7, and we will close with this. Matthew chapter 7. We'll continue this study on the judgment seat of Christ next week. So far, our primary focus has been on the judgment of the unbeliever at the great white throne. Matthew 7, page 1350, and we're going to conclude with this. And wrap it up this morning. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Now remember, what is the place of the judgment of the unbeliever? The great white throne. You will not be there as Christians. Some people think we'll be there to observe, but we're not there to be judged. That is for the unbeliever only, those who have not trusted Christ. But notice that this judgment, he talks about it here. For the great white throne in chapter 7, verse 21, please. 
Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. In the context, the will of the Father to go to the kingdom of God is to believe on Christ as your Savior. But read the next verse. Verse 22. Many will say to me in that day. What day? The judgment day. The great white throne. So here's the conversation. Here's people talking back to God in this time of judgment. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Many people will begin to brag about and come forth with all the good things they did in life. Said, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Have we not preached in your name? Have we not cast out devils? Have we not healed your name? Have we not your name done many wonderful works? Now notice carefully. These people call Jesus Christ Lord. Lord, Lord. Have we not preached? These people have preached in the name of Jesus Christ. They have healed in the name of Jesus Christ. And done many wonderful works. All in the name of Christ. Read the next verse. And then will I profess unto them, I what? I once knew you and lost you. No, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. One commentary I had thought, well, you know, if people called Jesus Lord and preached and healed and done one thing, surely they were saved. And said, but it didn't say, I once knew you and lost you. I never knew you. Basically, these people were bringing forth all the good things they'd done as the means why God should let them in heaven. Lord, look what I've done for you. All the good works I've done in your name. And notice what he calls their works. He says, workers of iniquity. In other words, the works people do to try to merit salvation, enter God's presence, is sin. That's what he says. It cannot save. And so these people got a rude awakening. They thought, I'm going to heaven because I refer to Christ as my Lord, and I preach, I healed, and done wonderful things in his name. And they're going to hear the Lord say, I never knew you. Ye that work iniquity, depart from me. So let me close with this. You may be here today, and you've done a lot of wonderful things. But why? Are you doing them to get to heaven? Or are you doing them because you are going to heaven? There's a big difference. So many people today are trying to get to heaven by the good works they do. And try to earn the salvation, try to merit favor with God. And, and when they get to heaven, maybe God say, why should I let you know my heaven? And they begin to pile up all kind of works they've done. Here's what I, why? And God said, I never knew you. By the way, if God would ask you, why should I let you know my heaven? What answer would you give? I like the hymn. Nothing with me do I bring. Just simply to the cross I cling. Why should I go to heaven? Because of the shed blood of Christ. Because he died for me and paid for my sin. Not because of anything I've done, but rather what he's done for me. That's the reason you all let me in heaven. Enter thou in the joy of the Lord. You see the difference? What's your hope for heaven? What are you trusting in to get to have eternal life? Is it your good works? Or is it Christ? Hope is Christ alone. That's what saves. And you say, Pastor, I'm sorry. I've been trusting my works. You need to repent. 
either tr change your mind that your works can't save you and trust Christ to save you. Repentance toward God and faith in Lord Jesus Christ. If you are saved, my friend, one day you will be judged. How do you feel about that? Uh, is that exciting for you? Are you looking forward to it? We're going to talk more about it next week. Come back, same time, same station next week. All right, let's close with this. My message so far has been primarily to the unbeliever, talking about the judgment of God upon them, called the great white throne, where God has all your works, your deeds, thoughts, everything are recorded. And one day, God's going to open a book, books, plural, and everything you've ever done will be brought forth. And uh, then he'll judge you accordingly. And the purpose of that judgment is not to determine where you go when you die, but the severity of your judgment in hell. And so, Christ, I'm not Christian. So my question is, have you ever personally trusted Christ? He's the escape from the judgment. He's the one who died for you. He paid for your sin. Remember, God is holy, and you must be holy in his presence. God is just. And, and that means his justice demands punishment for those who don't meet that standard of holiness. But God is merciful. He pleads for life. And also, God is love. He provided a substitute. He sent his son to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And salvation comes when you receive by faith what the payment Christ made for you on the cross and trust him to be your savior. Most of you have done that. But if you haven't did that, would you do it today? Let's bow together, please. As her heads are bowed and eyes are closed. My friend, has there ever been a time in your life that you have made that decision to trust Christ? That you have understood that you are a sinner? And because you've sinned, you've earned the judgment of a holy God. And that judgment has spent eternity in a place called hell. And you realize that you cannot save yourself. Your works, your conduct, behavior cannot save you, cannot merit favor with God. But God loves you just the way you are. And because of his mercy and grace, he sent his son to die for you. The payment of sin that you owe to God, Jesus Christ has already paid when he died on the cross, he died there for you. And he paid for your sin, he was buried, and he rose again. And through his sacrifice, through his death, we can have forgiveness and a home in heaven. Have you ever made that decision to trust Christ as your Savior? If you haven't, my friend, why not do it now? Right where you're sitting, either watching by live stream or sitting in this building here, sanctuary, make that decision to trust Christ. Pastor, how do I do it? The Bible said, whosoever shall call upon him, Lord, shall be saved. And you can call upon him in faith, maybe just saying something like this. Just say, dear God of heaven, I acknowledge and admit that I'm a sinner. And because I've sinned, I've earned, I deserve your punishment. But God, I believe that Jesus was punished in my place. The judgment for my sin, he took upon himself. And I believe that when he died, he died for me. That he was buried and he rose again. And right here today, I am trusting Christ to be my Savior. 
I'm trusting him to forgive me and to give me eternal life. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, my friend, did you trust Christ as your Savior? Did you talk to God and do that, through that prayer, trust Christ to be your Savior? If you did, I'd like to know that. I, I want to pray for those who made that decision. My prayer does not save you. It's Christ that saves you when you trusted him. But if you did that today for the first time and allow me to know that and allow me to pray for you, I would count it at a privilege. And I want to do this with heads bowed and eyes closed. No one looking around, no one leaving. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, why not do it right now? If you did do that, let me pray for you. So, Pastor, you say, Pastor, I trusted Christ. Here's my hand. Would you pray for me? Slip your hand over high. If you trusted Christ, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? If you trusted Christ today as your Savior, so I can pray for you. Slip your hand over high. Put it back down. Pastor, I trusted Christ with you. I prayed that prayer. Please pray for me. You want it all this morning? Father in heaven, I hope that means each one here has already made that decision, that heaven's our home, they have eternal life. But we can rejoice. We don't have to worry about the, ju- the great white throne judgment. However, we do need to be concerned about what is called the judgment seat of Christ. And we will do more detailed study of that next week because we all must appear before that judgment. But Father, in the meantime, help us to be found faithful. Help us to serve you and honor you with our lives so we can stand the judgment with great joy and not grief or sh- sorrow. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.